0: Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Dotus Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account That's DonorStrust.org slash Just News.
1: Hi there. Thank you for joining us at the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marcia Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is an author scholar, columnist, essayist, political and cultural critic, and perhaps our favorite unwitting provocateur of the left. This is the Saturday weekend edition, and we're going to look at some topics in current culture, the Latino population turning red the vanishing of farm life and some of Victor's research and thoughts, though he is not a medical doctor, but nonetheless, he's done a lot of research on long COVID. So we're going to have a look at that. First, let's take a moment for these messages.
2: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.
1: welcome back victor um usually i ask how are you doing this is going to be a weekend edition i am um
3: i'm doing well i i had the flu and I got over it and a few questions on health i'm on the downward slope on this long COVID and Why? Wait, Sammy, we had a disagreement before you suggested I was a pundit. And then you backtracked and said I was a commentator. Now you're saying I'm a provocateur.
1: <laughs> you are. I did say unwitting. So if you don't <laughs> want to be one, yeah, oh. <laughs> that's exactly why I called it unwitting. So I know that you're not I, trying I, to be a provocateur. You are merely presenting things as they are. I remember when what Harry going. Truman
3: said? I just give them the truth and they call it hell. When they said, "Are you? you give them hell, Harry. He said, I give them the truth. They call it hell.
1: Yep, yeah, it's about what the truth is most most of the time. Let's turn to our our subjects here. We have a interesting phenomenon going on, which perhaps I, I heard you talking with Jack earlier about scaring the left, and I think that they are afraid of what the Republicans might do, which is what you were talking about. But they're also afraid of this Latino population turning right, and we see new. Faces in the Republican Party and in Congress, such as Myra Flores and Yesley Vega, and I was wondering your analysis on just how far will this go?
3: Well, there had been this Republican um, mantra for the last half century that immigration, largely from Mexico and as often illegal as legal, was should not be opposed because it would be in the republican party's interest because the republican party was the party of the christian coalition, family values, it promoted large families, religion, traditionalism, anti-abortion, suspicion over, you know, radical gay, radical feminist, all this stuff, cultural issues. And that never really happened. So, when, yeah. I mean, there were aberrations. I think George W. Bush maybe got, I don't know what it was, 40% of the Latino vote in 2004. Or uh, Jeb Bush in Miami-Dade County, I think he got well up to, I don't know what it was, 70 65%. But usually it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because the Democrats... Uh, claim they were lunch bucket unionization middle-class people and two they were the party of federal entitlement so when you came across the board it were democrats that were responsible for giving you food stamps and oh ebt cards and um, legal educational health housing subsidies and the Republicans were, on. in the contrast, the Mitt Romney aristocratic, wealthy, white golfing crowd. They didn't care. So that was the paradigm. So when Karl Rove and others said, you know, let's not mention open borders because eventually it's going to benefit, he was wrong. And I wrote Mexifornia in 2002 and three, and suggested that if it continued, the state would be a minority-majority state – and it would go very hard left. I think I was right about that, because um, at least until now, we're not going to see another Pete Wilson, George Dugmash, Ronald Reagan uh, governor unless things change. But I think they're changing. So if they're going to change, Sammy, then the original things have to either be invalid now or they have flipped. I think they have. So let's take the... Re- Democratic Party. Yes, it still panders as we see to open borders, but it is no longer a middle class lunch bucket unionized traditional ethnic party. It's the party of what? uh, Transgender experimental surgeries without parents' consent, drag queen shows at schools and community events, uh, abortion to the last day of birth. Radical BLM Antifa type activity. I'm going to go on and on. So it has alienated the Latino community, not because um, that they've changed their emphasis on family values, which wasn't their main drawing card, but the Democratic Party is not doesn't embrace that anymore. It's antithetical, and you can see certain. Uh, and I guess you'd call them iconic moments. For example, after Roe B. Wade, where people dressed up in handmade costumes and crashed, uh, di- Catholic, di- Catholic church, uh, mass in Los Angeles was primarily, was primarily Hispanics and they just got, they put, didn't want to put up with it, the nonsense. So that's one thing. And then on the other side of the ledger, let's be honest that. The Democratic, the Republican Party is not run by Bill Kristol. It's not run by David Fromm. It's not run by George Will on the pundit side. It's not run by Mitt Romney. It's not run by the Bushes. It's not run by any of that particular class. In other words, it's not so easily caricatured as a golf golfing. I'm not taking anything away from golf. It's a wonderful sport. I never golf, but maybe before I die, I'll try it. But my point is that it's not so easily uh, pigeonholed as wealthy white corporate elites. Which, by the way, worth, wealthy white corporate elites are mostly left-wing now. But it is a new workers, nationalist, upper middle, 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 lower middle class. And so it makes it easier for Latinos who are actually very upwardly mobile. And, and where we live... There's we being my family um for generations that if you want something done, if you want your um, roof put on, if you want your house painted, if you want a quality electrician, if you want uh somebody putting in ducting, then you're going to f- one out of two times have a mexican American contractor and largely Mexican-American laborer, and the contractor, if he talks to you, will be complaining about California. He'll be complaining about how expensive it is to fill up his diesel truck, how many regulations he has to have for his employees, how much taxes he has to pay, how awful the schools are for his kid, how unsafe it is when he parks his truck at his uh, business at night, etc., etc., And the Democratic Party just ignored all that. And it's a party of Silicon Valley. I'm just speaking about the state, but it's true nationwide. So what I'm getting at is Donald Trump, for all of his the criticism people lodge against him, he rebirthed the Republican Party in a very different way. And that different way got historic participation by Latinos. And he did it at the very time the Democratic Party went into an insane trajectory, and it was antithetical. It really was anti-family values, and those two were force multipliers of each other. Now, that doesn't mean you can wipe out a half a century of democratic investment. And remember, the the Latino elite is heavily invested in the Democratic Party, and so it's the elites are all left-wing. You mentioned some Mexican-American thats a, uh, candidates and congresspeople. That's new, and it's going to continue. But right now, the plum jobs in California are often held by Latinos in government. But theres that's not the entire community. So I think you're going to have half, 45% to 50% within that range of Mexican-American voters, as well as Cuban voters, Venezuelan voters who are going to vote Republican. And that's going to be very important because the Democratic Party has gone out of its way to insult, insult, ridicule, defame the working class white voter. And just think of all the euphemisms they from Obama to, to Biden, working backward, chumps, dregs. Uh, remember John McCain, crazies. Uh, clingers deplorables irredeemables all of that go into the peter struck text uh, vocabulary you know toothless smelly and they're not ever going to come back uh, hillary clinton going into west virginia you know i'm going to break the coal industry things like that they're never ever the white working class is not going to go back to the democratic party and like the latino class uh it sees the Republican Party as a populist party. So how funny that a queen speaking orange man uh billionaire was able to destroy the monopoly of people in his class. But he did. And I don't think it's now rest on Donald Trump. It's it's embraced by every Republican. Yeah, that's what I that's, that's what I true. find so amusing when you read, say Every once in a while, i just look at the bulwark, and it's so funny to read these people uh, that are former Republicans, and now they're angry, and they think they have the moral high ground. And when you read what they're saying, they're, they're making fun of the Republican. Oh, the Republican, Lynn Cheney, you know, Liz Cheney, oh, they've gone crazy, you can't. No, they haven't gone crazy. What's happened is they don't want to vote for people like you anymore. Because they feel that you were careerist. You were beltway functionaries. You were grifters. You were, you made a great living on being for everything, uh, but what they were interested in. You know, I, I, they understood that capital gains reduction was good for the economy, that, you know, intervention now and then was necessary overseas, et cetera, et cetera. But you weren't, you didn't care about their issues like outsourcing and offshoring and crime and all of this and so it's very funny that they are the elitist and they're irrelevant and they hate the people who made them irrelevant who were the people and what's even funnier is that we were told that conservatives were going to create racial divisions where in fact this new um, populist republican party has diminish racial differences and it's welcome people of the same class. So you're going to see a lot of African-American males. I mean, a lot in terms relative terms of 20 percent and 45, as I said, to 55 percent Latinos join and voting for Republican candidates. And remember, the Republican candidates, this is what's even stranger. There are some very good candidates that come from the traditional Republican profile. That is, they were very successful in business and they promised to bring that know how to governance. But there's a lot that aren't. They're small business people, they're blacks, they're military veterans, they're women broadcasters or anchor women like Carrie Lake, or they're like J.D. Vance. And they bring a a lot of middle class familiarity. Herschel Walker. And so, I mean, they're very successful, but they they come from such different non-corporate backgrounds. I am not I know that J.D. Vance works for an investment firm and Blake Masters works for Peter Till and all that, but there's so many more. And so, I, I think they're going to do very well. And I think the, the Democratic Party feels that for all the talk about the Republican Party went crazy and that they're, where's the Republican Party that I used to know and respect? I, you never knew it. You never respected it. But- It's you, not them, who's changed uh, in a negative way. They've changed to be more inclusive. You become more exclusive, and that's why you're going to lose.
1: Yeah, do you think that they're afraid of this? I'm just looking at a New York Times poll, and they say that the 56% will vote in in December for Democrat, sorry, in November for Democrats, and 32 percent for Republicans. But in the same poll, they say that they're even split on which party they agree with more: at Democrat 43, Republican 41. So yeah. I don't, I don't know Wait, if was that a national
3: poll. There. That was a national poll.
1: Uh yeah, it was.
3: Yeah, well, I think if you look at now updated party affiliations it's not like it was it's 37 or 35 democrat and 31 or 32 republican and independents are the largest yeah and so they're the they are the party that is bleeding the most and there's been all these flips from republican i mean democrat republican states like florida and texas yeah and so i mean you, you can just see it when you listen to these candidates on television, they don't, A, ever suggest they want to change uh, Joe Biden's policies, and they don't give you any concrete suggestions how they would change it if they did want to change it. And, B, they don't talk about it. They don't They don't defend it. They don't promise to be better. All they do is talk about abortion or Donald Trump. Or, yeah. You know, so it's just- more... Margo. They have a tri- this, this, they have a triad in this campaign. It was one January six, January six, January six. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago raid, Mar-a-Lago raid, or Joe Biden is giving you free student loan amnesty. Free, you don't have to pay back your loans. He's going to legalize your dope. Marijuana is good. It's don't worry about gas. He's pumping out of the strategic. Petroleum Reserve. You know what? The COVID lockdowns are still in effect in terms of your COVID check. It was just buying off the electorate, and yeah. to the degree they talked about elections, it was always abortion, 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 abortion. He's going to. They talked it to death, and so that women, the constituents, constituency that that message was aimed for, got sick of it, and that's you can see it with independent women. They got sick of it. In other words. Okay, abortion, you're right, it should be a private, but under the rejection of Dobbs. Now, each state can make that decision. And if you're a woman who wants an abortion in a red state that has outlawed it up until, you know, outlawed it completely or not the last 15 weeks, then you can get in your car and drive across the state line in most cases. Gavin Newsom will even fly you, and the military will fly you anywhere you want to go. (laughs) <laughs> and so it, it doesn't seem like it's a pressing uh, ex- existential issue the way it's framed. But if you keep talking about it and keep talking about it and keep talking about it and keep talking about it, then you, try, you finally draw people's attention to it. And it is killing a young person in a womb. And people don't want to talk about that. But you force them to talk about that, and they will resent you for making you talk about that. And the same thing applies to Republicans when you keep saying, sanctity of life, sanctity of life, yes, yes. But you know what? You're going to have that baby even if your father raped you or a a stranger beat you over the head and raped you. And then people are going to say, hmm, so I'm going to carry this, you know what I mean, of somebody who ruined my life and raped me and tried to destroy me. And that's I mean, in a Christian world that child is not blameworthy of that. But in the real world, you keep you don't talk about that. And so as I said with Jack, to the degree that each side avoided that, it was a it wasn't an issue that hurt them, but the Democrats are not can't let it alone.
1: No, they sure can't. And they seem to be sort of um, in denial, I guess, if I had to identify their psychological condition of what's going to happen in November, or at least the presses seem that way. They seem to be, I guess, wanting to talk up their sides, um, you know, to get people out to vote. They want to assure them that they're going to win in November and I don't know. It, it, I, you're even starting to convince me that they won't win.
3: <laughs> they're not. No, no. They're. It's not that they're not going to win. It's going to be that they're going to lose, as Trump said, bigly, bigly, <laughs> because uh, you can just see it in the commentariat and what people are writing. And yeah. what they're saying is Jim Crow voter suppression, voter fraud fraud. Uh, Racism, Trump candidates, Proud Boys, that's what they're talking about, because they know that's it's coming. If they had any integrity, they would say, uh, we have a message that people don't want to vote for. Therefore, we're either going to accept that and gracefully leave the political arena because they hate us for what we did, or they're going to try to say, you know what, you may be right, so... Let's open up Anwar and finish Keystone. Let's finish the let's finish the wall. And then we'll talk about it. But for now, we'll just finish the wall, and stop the madness. And let's get federal prosecutors in here to try to get some kind of interstate or cross-state prosecutions of some of these criminals because the local DAs won't do it. They're not going to do that. No. And so people want them to do it. They're just going to go abortion, abortion, abortion. And people are going to they're going to vote. And then when they're going to vote them out of office, and I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a ceiling on this because once people shrug and decide, each race becomes kind of a reflection of that group shrug, that consensus. So except in, you know, maybe AOC seat places like that, Hawaii, but every, every single seat is vulnerable. And so, Anything can happen because the same phenomenon is rippling through the entire country. So somebody in Tennessee or somebody in North Dakota or somebody in Michigan or somebody in downtown L.A., no matter what it is, doesn't like paying for gas. They don't like inflation. They do not like crime. They do not like the open border. They meaning almost everybody. And they want people to talk about it. And when these people don't talk about it, they lump them as responsible for it. And so they don't care about the party affiliation anymore to a certain degree. And you're going to see things, I think, for that, given that the times and the money that Democrats have and the media blitz they use, they're still going to lose and they're going to lose big time. Believe me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was listening to you and Jack this week and uh, you said something to the effect of, uh, "They're going to blame it all on Joe Biden, ultimately." Yeah, and...
3: they will. They will. Who else can they blame it on? Themselves.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. What, I, are, they, what I, are they? What are they?
3: What are they going to say when uh, Kelly loses Arizona? He voted for Biden ninety five percent of the time. What are they going to say yeah. when Fetterman loses in Pennsylvania? He voted. Uh, as a lieutenant governor for everything that Biden is for. What are they going to say?
1: And he's very vulnerable with his Hunter and his dementia, you know? They didn't
3: have. It was so funny. I don't understand Mitch McConnell. He's a very sensible person in some ways. He did a lot of good service by out maneuvering the left to get judicial appointments that were conservative uh, approved. But my point is, when he sort of pulled money out from Arizona and he said these candidates are less than impressive, he was just caught up with this left-wing hoax that there was a sudden blue wave, which never mm-hmm. exists. As I've said on all these broadcasts, it never existed. Yeah. Just a media construction to discourage turnout and funding. But these candidates were good. They were good. All of them were good. And, and we're glad the guy, Laxall is good. And Masters is good, and uh's opponent Oz, he's good. Yeah. JD Vance is good. This idea that they were bad is just—I think it reflects Mitch Mitch's fears that they're going to get elected, and that they're going to be elected. There is going to be four or five people that are not orthodox Republicans as he's assumed for support for Majority Leader. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and you know, I I think that he's afraid of a squad situation. You know, the left has the squad, and it always destabilizes. And I think he might be afraid. I'm going to have these loose wires come in here. We I mean, that would be my guess. Yeah, I don't but, think it's wires, da- but it's a lot more
3: it's a lot more dangerous because they represent entire states. The squad are congressional districts, that's and true. they are they are all without exception, Presley and. Elian Omar and AOC and Talib, the four of them are all from gerrymandered special uh, minority majority districts. Okay, but these people are from entire states, so they have much larger constituencies, yeah. and much and they have to have a, a degrees of a, a skill set that these people don't have and experience. To get elected statewide, AOC mm-hmm. could never be elected statewide. Tlaib could never be. Elon Omar would never be elected statewide, even in Minnesota. Yeah. Wesley could never be elected statewide. Blake Masters has a good shot. Even Herschel Walker has a good shot. JD Vance is going to win. Oz, I think, is going to win. Laxalt's going to win. So they come in there. And they are serious people. They have so many more political skills than the squad, and they have such larger constituencies, and they're going to join a Senate. Many members were mad that Mitch didn't get in early on and support these people. And so uh, we'll see what happens. But Yeah. They're going to be they're going to be very visible in a Republican-dominated Senate. When you're going to see them on TV, and they're to, that cross examination you saw with Rand Paul and Doctor Fauci is going to be magnified and re- replicated again and again, but with people just as skilled, if not more skilled than not Rand yeah. Paul.
1: Yeah. All right, Victor. Let's go ahead and take a break for a few messages, and then come back, and we'll talk about um, COVID long. Oh, sorry. We'll come right back and talk about, um, the vanishing farm life. So let's go ahead and have our break.
2: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
1: Right, Welcome back, Victor. I know you did two books on farming, Fields Without Dreams and The Land Was Everything, and they were well-received. I think even Jane Smiley, um, did she write the introduction to Fields Without yeah, Dreams? Yeah, I think
3: I, I went through that tortured relationship once, but yes, she yeah. did.
1: Yeah. And then so, she
3: called me and wanted her, her name removed, I think, five years later because I supported the Iraq war.
1: Yeah. So and then um they're both on the declining um American farming existence, right? That, that no longer small farms anymore. But I was wondering if you could discuss with us current um problems in the in in agriculture.
3: Well, There was a duality in American agriculture, and that duality was agriculture, agriculture, agribusiness, and agrarianism. Agrarianism denoted the cultural aspect of farming, that is, putting a family on a piece of ground they owned over generations, and the values that are inculcated by the act of farming and their contribution uh, with other type of family farms to the community at large. Okay. That was America, 94% at our founding. And after, you know, with mechanization and vertical immigration, et cetera, we got down to about 2%. But that 2% was viable. And there were people who were, you know, part of the farming community that had jobs in town. But in the 21st century, that process accelerated with globalization because the markets became huge it's six seven billion people suddenly if you were in fresno you owned a you were a corporation you were vertically integrated to the degree you had you had orchards and vineyards in chile to get the winter market or you had uh, a farm in australia or and that required a degree of sophistication and so you were vertically integrated by that i just mean the The market, the produce that left your farm that you controlled was in your trucks that went to your processing plant or packing house that went the finished product that your broker sold that went to the store. Okay, and the average farmer uh, didn't have the expertise, much less the capital to capitalize. So they were sort of like the deplorables, the irredeemables. They lost out. And we wiped out a large segment of that farming class that had survived global, uh, you know, the diminishment yeah. in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So, in this area that I'm talking about, if when I fly over it, I look down at the tessera, the the squares, the s- sections of farming. I go over to my house because it's on the route out to Los Angeles sometimes, and. It's amazing that these 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, they all have the little houses on them, but they're not farming. I mean, the land is in production, but it's either rented out or owned by corporate. And the corporations are not, you know, musty, mustachioed banditos. Snidely Whiplashes from my childhood cartoons. They're <laughs> they're good people. They're just family farms that had the size or the know-how or the audacity or the capital. They got big. There are some out-of-state corporations, but my point is that there's no longer a viability. Uh, and so you're not getting a contribution. So you go to a local town in this area or anywhere in the middle, it's not run by farmers on the school board, the hospital board, the Little League Commission. It, it, that, that, that infrastructure is very different. You don't have these farmers that have that experience with nature and practicality and politics. How many times have you heard a senator? I mean, I think on one of the broadcasts, you mentioned Grassley, right? Yes, I said he was 89. He's one of my favorite senators. He's a farmer. He was a farmer. So I bet he can still get on a tractor and drive it at 89. So my point is this, is that that was something that was lost, not in the agricultural sense, because if you look at the actual production per acre, like on the farm that I live on that I rent out to a corporation, a family corporation, if you look at the amount of water, used less pesticides used less fertilizer, used less production tripled from my that's what corporations have done and if you want to say well it's a conspiracy they use toxic they use less toxic chemicals than we did as family farmers so i'm not arguing about we're going to starve but there were there was Something about that culture growing up and having multi-generational families living in the same place. I mean, we lived on the same farm with my aunt, with crippled aunt, with my grandparents, my parents. We were free range and everybody was. And so we went to school. We we started after Labor Day because everybody said, oh, I got to go pick grapes. Or you come out to your farm and you'd the, the guy would talk to your dad about do you guys use an Oliver or do you use a Massey. It was, it was kind of a community, and then you'd go into the school board, and there'd be a farmer on there, you know, and it, it was, there was something other than just the production of food was going on on these farms. So I, you know, I was remembering the other day, some of our listeners like uh, classic Westerns or maybe war movies. One of my favorite was 12 O'Clock High with Gregory Preck, and it's kind of a, an enactment of the Schweinfurt raid and the disastrous uh, United States entrance, entrance into World War II from that terrible period from 1942, late 42 to mid-44, when, my God, I don't know who thought it up. I do know who thought it up, but why they continued with daylight on escorted bombing and B-17s into Europe, but they were wiped out, 40,000 killed. And Greggy Peck is in this, but the point I'm making is Dean Jagger, who's a pretty good actor. He's in a little shop and he sees he sees this uh, jug that they all used to put bets in and stuff for money in, and he remembers that's been pawned, but it was from that fighter, that bomber squadron. And then the whole movie is a flashback, and he mm-hmm. started So I was driving the other day, actually it was yesterday. And I just thought, I'm going to drive through all of this patchwork of farms and try to remember. And so I saw all the homes where when I was a little kid, I visited, or when I was actively farming, I knew everybody there, right? Yeah. And I thought, what happened? So when I was driving down a road, and the, the big fallout was that it started with the 80s, 90s, but boy, by the time you got around 2000, and we went into full globalization and whole whole industries collapsed, mm-hmm. both because of foreign competition and because internally uh, the prices were low for the commodity for a plum or a peach or a nectarine because the money was made in the packing and distribution and selling of it. So when people were vertically integrated, they were willing to farm la- farm. Uh, to get the product at a loss, and for tax benefits, buying land, depreciation, but they could make a ton of money. But the farmers who were competing with that, because there is a market, were killed because that's all they had was the market price for their commodities. They had no way of making up that loss through a vertically I mean, a, a vertically uh, integrated operation. Okay. So I was driving by and I just saw him. It just came out. I just I said, Oh my God, there's that house. He he I went to high school with him. He was trying to farm. He went to farmers. He he put a rope around his neck. He shot himself. He took grapes so he could make sure he killed himself. And then I was driving around. I said, There, there, that guy. I used to go to farmers market. He had a booth next to me. He had 20 acres. He was trying to save money and fix his Arbor. For his former... he fell off and shattered his back and went paralyzed. And then I was driving further, and I said, "Wow, I remember that guy. He did my brush shredding. He did it. What happened to him?" And I thought, "Wow, he just got on a three wheeler and was making turns and went right into the path of a truck outside of his vineyard, and killed himself, oh, accident, accidentally." Yeah, and, and then I said, well, "Wow, what happened to that person?" And I said, Wow, he was a wonderful person. I went to high school. He was one he was one of the he, I, he just drank himself to death. I remember he came over when I wrote Fields Without Dreams and I signed a book. He was like 110 pounds. He was drinking all day long.
0: He's mm. a wonder,
3: wonderful person. And then I was driving by, I said, Where's that guy? I thought, wow, he's the most brilliant mechanic I ever met in my life. He could what? fix anything. And he was farming and then the price came and the price went for t- table grapes down to this level and plums to this level and this and he didn't have the capital to ch- tear out everything and go into almonds for a while he didn't and he just moved away he's gone mm-hmm. and then i looked at my own family and i thought where where were, who who was there they're all gone and where what's replaced it it's mostly people living in the homes of very poor people that are here illegally because you know this is the, the corporations or the people renting the land or owning it don't want the homes, but they have people that work on the farm or they want to rent it out, and they have like instead of a farm family of five, five that it's in high school and on the there's like thirty people living there twenty people, none of them speak English and they're, it's all. In many ways, it's contrary to zoning. Where it's just, I went by a farm about three miles, I thought, "I'm going to go by that farm because it was the most meticulous lawn." And his wife, I remember, was out there all the time, where there, everything was dead. It was completely dead, and there was about seven seven cars outside that hadn't been painted in years. It was horrible. the mm. The whole destruction of that beautiful farmhouse. So. It was kind of like Dean Jagger going back and thinking, "Wow, that that whole group of people are wiped out, and we don't think about that."
1: What do you think it's symptomatic of, though? All of this, this panop, you know, sort of mosaic you're painting of decline or death. I'm not sure which one, but what is it?
3: I think part of it was that a lot of things. Uh, One of them is that as this country grew to 330 million and food got even cheaper and it was transported at great distances and you had the I mean, when I go into a huge super food market, it's just, there was nothing like that in my childhood. I mean, they've got everything, right? Mm, And it's just amazing. It almost looks like, it's funny it's almost like and the best ones are almost like fake farmers markets they have wood floors you know what i mean and barrels and stuff like this even though it's a big you know a super safe way or whatever mm. or krogers or something but uh, what caused it was that ability to con- to satisfy consumer demand for fruit you can go in and at any supermarket you can buy red or green grapes in february you can buy peaches in april you can you know what i mean there's no such you can buy oranges in july mm-hmm. there's no i mean with cold storage and worldwide markets and peak corporations growing stuff all over the world it's it's a very different experience and to dissatisfy or to create that demand required as i said levels of intricacy and size that were antithetical to a small little farm I was thinking of my grandfather, if you told my grandfather, Mr. Davis, now you've got your 120 acres and you've got your little system of your vines here and your peaches there and your plums there and your grandkids and your kids are all living there, but that's not going to satisfy new consumer demand. So what we want you to do is you, first of all, to make this economical, you got to go from 120 to 700 acres. Now we want some semi-trucks here. And that barn, we're gonna, it's not gonna be, you know, old Jim and old Jed, the old donkey and horse that are remnants of your that are living there. You're gonna take that thing and rip it out and build a, a big packing house. And then you've got to get somebody in your family to get into brokerage. And he's gonna say, Well, I don't have that kind of money. How I never made that much money. I didn't really want to make that much money. I was just trying to create a family ethos. So he would say, well, my, I had three daughters, and I mortgaged the family, and I sent them up to Stanford University, and they got educated, and they were all good citizens, and no one in my family has ever been arrested, not even for... A drunk, nobody drinks in my family. And I tried, we don't even smoke cigarette. That's what he would say. We've been good. And I was on the school board. I was president of the Salma School Board. And I was the mason. And I, my wife was, uh, you know, head of the Walnut Improvement Club, and they read books. That's what he would tell you. And I kept my daughter, she can't walk. And I didn't put her on the dole. and I kept her in our house and we took care of her and we, my my daughter went to work because we were the daycare because we picked our grandkids up and they stayed with us during the day after school. That's what he would say.
1: So are you telling me that there's, there is a decline of civic responsibility? Yes.
3: There was no homelessness. As I said, we had a relative that fought in the Philippines and got dinghy fever and he was not all there. And he rented a room and everybody in the family went and checked on him and brought him food and he rode his bicycle out here from town and everybody took care of him and and my aunt was got a terrible case of polio and she went up to the Shriner and they just destroyed her body with 17 operations trying to break bones in those days in the 20s and, and when they got done with her she could not go to she graduated from San Jose State I don't know how she did it she was going to go to Stanford but she couldn't do it and she had learned how to be to work a loom and stuff and made sweaters and stuff but they took care of her today that wouldn't happen
1: mm-hmm.
3: and when they got old we took care of them. You know what I'm saying? And when my father died, we took care of him. And when my mother died, she had a brain tumor. We took care of her on the farm. Both of them were taken care of on the farm. That doesn't happen anymore. And so, yeah, there's just a difference. And there's no sense, sense that there's There's no sign, there's no, you don't go into a supermarket and say, I better get my grapes because they won't be here because the season's over, right?
1: Yeah.
3: Because they don't, person, know that if you're living in Washington, D.C. and you see a green grape in August and you see one in April, you have no idea that they're different. You have no one that one came from California and one came from Chile, (laughs) right? Mm Yeah. You have no idea and you'd have no idea that the guy, the one that came from Chile is owned by the guy who owns the grape in California. So, (laughs) and so it's different. I'm not trying to be moralistic and say it's bad. I'm just saying we made it so efficient and food is so cheap and it's so scientifically orientated. There's no art of farming now. We, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a laboratory science and that's wonderful because we've used less resources to produce more food. But in the process, that whole way of life that had its roots all the way back to the foundation of a country and all of the baggage that people hate that was part of it was lost. So I can remember coming home and I said, you know, I was in a car. I was a freshman in high school, and one of the guys ran into the foster freeze and stole something and i'm worried and my my mom said oh my god what do you mean were you in the car i said yes because what did you we, we don't do those things in our family so i want you to go in there and you go you're not going to tell a person who did it but you go back in there and so i went back in there and I said to the owner, "I think somebody. I saw somebody." And he was. He said, "Oh, it's cheap. It didn't matter." I said, "Well, I'll try to." And I went back to the person and I said, "Would you please return that?" That's the kind of stuff they did. You know what I mean? And yeah. I could. I can remember once there was a Mexican American family. It was my best friend, and his parents went to Mexico, and he was living with his grandmother. It was like eighty eight. And we came home once and my grandmother said to me, well, Benny, where where's your dad? He goes, well, my dad's in Mexico. Well, have you eaten? No. Well, well you're going to sit down here and eat. And then my grandmother made a big thing for him and said, now we're going to take you home. But he had a bicycle. So we put it in the old international truck and then there. And then Benny did that all the time. He came out. And they that was what the whole world was like. And I can remember going doing that to other families when I'd walk home. There was no crime.
1: Okay, so you're not trying to be moral, but you are describing a situation that's very like Rome with the Latifundia. Yes, I kind of civic. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's
3: Latifundia. Latifundia was much more efficient as far as total food production, but it ruined the agrarian class of Italy. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that the Republic did not persist yeah tra- exactly. transform so what i'm saying is i don't know to the degree that i tried to write this my most of my life i've wrestled with this question but i do not know the degree to which that you can go in and get beautiful grapes and fresh fruit and whole bags of rice for very little money and even until joe biden was president pretty inexpensive cuts of meat and the fact that I have to have security cameras and a wall and you around my house. And when I walk around this farm that I was born into, I don't know why I walked around this morning. I saw a V8 engine this (laughs) morning, a whole engine just sitting there. Wow. People, throw. how do you throw away his trash? I walked down the alleyway and it made me look like it. I would say it looked like Mumbai, but it looked like San Francisco. It was just yeah. trash, 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 trash. Nobody would have allowed that. And I have all these keys. I, when we would go for three or four days, my dad would say, okay, to my mom, hey, Pauline, where's the key? <laughs> where's, the, where's the key? <laughs> oh, I'll well, just lock the front door. Don't worry. <laughs> there was no key. Or they'd put it on a tree, and it was like, Here's a big key ring that anybody can see. <laughs> you know, <it's> right there. <laughs> there was no there was no there was no security concerns whatsoever. No. Or, you know, they'd call up, hey, there's Ivor Johansson, the constable, the big old Swede, he's gonna come out and arrest the guy that pulled over. And when I nobody ran off the side of the road drunk and tore out your whole vineyard. And when they did, I remember a guy did. He was a Mexican-American guy, really nice guy. He got drunk, and he tore out about 15 vines. And that guy came over to my grandfather every single Saturday and gave him a, a $5 bill to pay for the damage. That had, I, that's happened to me in my lifetime six times. And nobody's ever done that. The pe- people ran away. They just left the car there. So my point is that this destruction of civic life and law and cohesiveness, and the outsourcing of familial responsibility to the state to take care of the unwannables or the the problematic people in our society, all came at the expense of efficiency. So the more the wealthier we got, the more choices we got, the more five hundred channels. We had material progress with moral regress. Just what Hesiod the poet said. And I don't know how to stop that. And that, when I was driving here, I just thought, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on. Go, that guy, he he got lymphoma. He couldn't face it. He blew his brains out. That guy, he, he was paralyzed the last year of life. Just fell down and just, he's just gone. This guy just killed himself. This guy got in this horrible, preventable wreck. And... It was just more. And I thought, wow, there's that farm. It doesn't exist. That farmhouse is gone. This is gone. Then when you saw the little bit of glimpses in the 80s and 90s that flicker, because I had, you know, the three children, I would would pick up my daughter. And so I went out to this uh, where all these farm families where she used to stay overnight and the houses are wrecked direct but the vineyard looks really uh, not the vineyard the the almond orchard looks beautiful because it's either rented out or owned by a corporation.
1: Yeah. And
3: so it's it's very strange that the the agricultural productivity has never been better but the homes that used to represent the people who worked there have never been worse.
1: Yeah, and that decline in civic responsibility, I think you treat some of this subject in your current new book which the paper da- back has just come out the dying citizen
3: i did i did and i i mean when i you see homelessness every one of those persons is related to somebody right
1: yeah
3: and that somebody understands that that person is a great inconvenience right
1: mm-hmm.
3: so that they i'm not you know i know a lot of people can don't have the wherewithal to take care of somebody but Maybe 10% or 20% could of the homeless could return back to their families and people could try to work with them. Or maybe a civic, somebody should say, we don't want cheap labor in the United States because it brings in Chinese produced cartel sold fentanyl and fentanyl is destroying this country. It's destroying this country. We're not going to allow it in. We don't care how, what that does to the labor market. We're not going to let it in we we have to have some culturally based values that contradict maybe just absolute free market logic sometimes not like to the extent of France I understand that although you know when I go to Germany or France or the the countryside of Greece there is a stability there they're not nearly as productive as we are as far as food their prices are much higher But there are stable rural communities there. It's eroding, but not like here. And there are areas in the United States and the Midwest where that still exists. I get on a bicycle at Hillsdale and I can ride around and see these declining small towns, but they still exist. And there's still things that I remember. I always feel when I go to Hillsdale for my annual teaching, I'm going back into the 19th century in some ways. Because there's still farmer's markets. You go out in the country, nobody's going to kill you. Nobody's going to mug you. Nobody's going to break into your house. When I rode my bike, I left my house that I was allowed to stay in open without blocking it. I never lost one thing in 20 years, not one. I left a backpack full of books and and a computer in many classrooms over 20 years. I never got it lost once. And that was not true of my career at CSU Fresno, and it's not true. It would not be at Stanford either. And so what I'm getting at is that agrarian rural ethos was very valuable to creating our constitution and our customs and traditions, and it was worth subsidizing, I think. And all these people who tried to resist it, the resisting of the vertical integration and corporization of of agriculture, nobody knew what they were doing. They, they were just destroyed. And they okay. killed themselves or they were killed. And I remember them. And it's like nobody remembers. So I was on this mm-hmm. sort of Dean Jagger riding my bicycle over this weed-infested tarmac with this flashback of all the guys that were in these B-17s. And they didn't realize that It was impossible to fly all the way into Germany without a P-51 or P-47 or go all the way in there during daylight in formation with a precision bomb, right? Rather than night area bombing. So that was kind of what these guys were up against. They didn't understand that it was hopeless that you were going to get prices for your fresh produce at 8% increases commiserate with your inflated costs it wasn't going to happen that the and don't get me wrong as a critic one of the things i like in my old age is going talking to farmers that i know and viewing the surviving family corporation i just went over to one uh fowler packing i mean you talk about homegrown absolute genius ingenuity humane treatment of people a satisfied, well compensated workforce. It's amazing what that family has done. So I admire that. And they're big, they're huge. And yeah. so, but I'm, and they're, they have the same values of that family. But uh, that phenomenon, not everything is like that particular family. And yeah. so uh, it's too bad, but it's something that it's going to be more and more question, I think. As we get into our Roman, the version of the Roman third or fourth century AD.
1: Yeah. And it seems to me that, you know, since there isn't the natural instinct of a small farmer who has a civic interest for people now, it, it's incumbent upon the schools to have a strong civic education. It you would can't seem like. Yeah.
3: yeah was, and they don't
1: was, have it. No.
3: It's, it's worse. So when I left the farm and I went to this rural school that was 90% Mexican-American, they would have fired everybody there today because they said things like, well, who wants to raise the American flag? Because every morning, one person gets to carry the flag around the classroom as we sing God bless America and do the flag salute. And then we would have our civic, you know, sixth grade. I want to tell everybody that this was the greatest system in the world. Now, what are the checks and balance? Victor, you play Supreme Court. Hilario, you play Congress. And Veronica, you play president. Okay, Victor, how are you going to check him? And he's going to check you. And so it was checks and balances. And, and then we went to Mrs. Redden, and she said, I want to make sure that every single person in this room speaks the King's English. And that includes you, Victor. And you, William, and all you people who didn't grow up in Mexico, you don't speak it any better. And so we had, I had to have speech therapy classes because I couldn't say the, the letter R. I said, wah. Wow. And she beat that into me and taught me how to say red rather than wed. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, she, when we had a group of eight, she said, we have a stick shift Chevy. And we don't, everybody would go, We have a stick chip Chevy. No, you don't have a Chevy. You have a Chevy. How are you going to be successful? How are you going to compete with these kids in prep school? How are you going to, and that's how, what well, we were, it was wonderful. And all of those people were successful. And it was all about civic education. And it came, it reverberated what they got at home. Okay. And, and, it was,
1: Today it's not like that at all. The civic education—I doubt the teachers even know much about the civic education in elementary school. Even the labor, even
3: the labor, and it, I know that the left would say it was paternalistic. But I remember Gregory Lopez came from Texas every year, and he would, you know, they, I'm speaking from the area in which he lived for three weeks. It, oh, it's nicer now. I'm in the—I'm in a barn right now. And it the reason it has water and electricity was because it was made for Gregory's family. And they had cots and wash and a bath and anything. The point I'm making is that I remember when they would leave, they, they would drive two cars. My grandfather would fill them up with gasoline. And then they'd have big, big uh, sacks of used clothing. Everybody gave them used clothing. And they worked very hard and they, it was, yes, they were poor and we were not as poor, but there wasn't that big divide between labor and capital. It was really, you live next to them, you talk to them. I, I know that I would play with their kids and we would work together and there was no, you know, um, it was just trust. It was weird. It was, and then I remember once uh, I, was at, I was in the barn playing, and I said, my grandfather uh, said, I'm supposed to shoot that woodpecker that's bothering up there in the rafters. My grandfather, you know, he always tells me to do stuff. And Gregory said, don't ever speak that way in my presence again against Mr. Davis. And I said, why? And he said, because he would never say that about me. I know that because people have told me that. And if he's not going, if he's going to treat me that way, you're going to treat him that way. Nobody would ever. Can you imagine that today? There would be so many Marxist critiques of labor exploitation that would just drive your your head would explode. (laughs) Yes, that's uh, true. And it's it's and it's. I know that it's very hard to have a complex lifestyle today, and it's very expensive, and the middle class is being destroyed by this Biden administration, but a lot of the complexity is considered necessity and a birthright, and we don't realize that that we lived in this country without five televisions or four televisions or without cable subscription or without Xboxes or video games or earbuds or whatever they're called, and you know what I mean? You can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And but we did lose something. We got more technologically sophisticated, we got less happier. And we got more diverse exciting lifestyles, more choices so to speak. I mean, when I, I if I want to watch an old smoke rerun, <laughs> there's 500 channels on direct tv. <laughs> it just blows your mind, but it's yes. not, but I'd but still it- rather just have three channels and watch Gunsmoke.
1: But if you look at the younger generation, there's so much to distract them that if you started talking to them about civic responsibility, they would just turn to their cell phone and <laughs> go yeah. on with their game. They don't, don't, don't want to have. They don't. Wanna,
3: they don't vote. They don't want to hear about it. They, you know, Jesse Waters started what is Bill O'Reilly's uh, "How Stupid Is America" correspondent on the street. Yeah, but. Even if you think he was deliberately trying to find stupid people, you couldn't find stupid people stupider than the people that he found. Yeah. it was It was just like, what's the capital of America? And they'd say Rome or something <laughs> or Fresno or something, or they'd say, "How often does a president have to face election uh, ten years? Two weeks? it was that kind of absurdity. And it happens all the day. There's all these industries that uh, immediate little mini industries that show you how stupid people are because they don't have any civic education. And to the degree they do have civic education, it's critical. It's all about yeah. how it's racial. One thing we're not talking about in this country is, and this is a final statement I'll have about my... Yeah, because we drive. need to go to a yeah. break. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Very quickly is that when you go down that diversity equity inclusion it's not just it's not just emphasis on that it's capital labor time taken away from other things in our zero sum existence so whether it's all these diversity czars or these mandates or whatever it is at the schools we don't have time anymore to inculcate a common curriculum a common civic educational path because we're we're just fragmenting into all these therapeutic, unnecessary, unproductive, nihilistic discipline, and boy, wait as I said, they're starting to hit airline pilots, nuclear plant operators, you name it. And when you start destroying merit and distracting people with all of these workshops, especially the military, it's not it's going to be we're going to pay a heavy price for it
1: yeah it's mediocritizing. yeah well victor let's go ahead and take a break and then come right back to talk a little bit about long covid we'll be right back Welcome back. I would just like to remind people that Victor's website is victorhanson.com. It's called The Blade of Perseus, and you can subscribe for $5 a month or $50 for an annual subscription. Um, We have a new um, app out for your cell phones. I believe the Google Play Store is for um, Samsung and other... um, not the Apple iPhones. We haven't quite got the Apple Store um, short up yet. But um, if you do have a Samsung or a what what are those other phones, Victor? I'm trying to think it's uh, Samsung or um,
3: I don't know. you're asking yeah. about you just made an argument about, Being technologically illiterate.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, so we have, we do have the app. We're very proud of that. So please come to uh, try it out if you can. And um, also, that um, to remind people that on social media, Victor can be found at Hanson's Morning Cup on Facebook and VD Hanson on Twitter. So please join us there. And finally, also, um, John Solomon's, um, our are we work with John Solomon and the just the news crew and you can find uh Victor's podcast there that's our podcasting site so um on his website as well but that's who we work with and so Victor I I know that you're not um Uh, A medical doctor, nor would you give advice to anybody that we would advise them to work with their own actual medical medical doctors. But we I know that you've done a lot of research since you have had uh, long COVID. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the fruits of your research for yourself. And
3: I've been really moved because I must have had 30 or 40 people call me or write me about it. They've heard that I'd had it. And so they've called. I've had five or six doctors that have called. And again, I'm not dispensing. I'll just medical advice. But it seems to be a consensus. Let me just do it in progression of what is it. And it seems to be that there is... A percentage of the people who get COVID of all types, Omicron, Delta, or the original strain, that the symptoms, although they alter somewhat, they continue after you test negative. So what we're saying is that people who don't have perceptible active viral part, you know, viral in your system, at least enough to cause clinical symptoms, still have symptoms. And so that then gets to the next stage, Sammy. Why is that? And that's a two-pronged answer. One, there's three or four theories of why your immune system, or the virus is active or not active, but you have the symptoms. And one of them is that you have an immune problem that insufficiently van- vanquished the virus. You you put it down enough, but you don't. You have intrinsic comorbidities in your immune system so that it's at a subclinical level of not testing positive, but at a level enough to do damage to you. Two, it whatever that level is, it's not the virus that's doing the damage. It's either the virus remnants that are pretty much inert, they're circulating, but they're inert, or they're the spike protein and they either one is exciting your immune system in certain predisposed people. So it's an autoimmune uh disease, or you were weakened through this ordeal with acute COVID, and that reactivated latent viruses like uh CBV or EBV, and you're suffering some of the immune responses to those viruses. And so those are the the choices, and then the symptomology is vast. But I won't go into all of it. But what are people saying? I have long COVID. What, what, what what's making me weird? Uh, and symptomology wise, there seems to be one cohesive explanation. And that's inflammation that you are secreting psychotones or leukotrienes or something. And again, this is not. I'm just trying to co- collate as an outsider what the medical community has come up with. And that immune expression manifests itself in five or six major areas. One is neuroinflammation. So you have brain fog. What does brain fog mean? It means you go into a room, and it happens to be all the time now. I got to go into their living room and get you know, a pen, and you get in there, and you forgot what it was. Or your word search. You never have done that quite before. Or you're writing something. For a column and you have to read it out loud now because it sounds kind of crazy if you that's brain fog or you've lost your taste i've lost my taste and smell i'm getting some of it back but that's probably from inflammation i always didn't i didn't have great hearing but i kind of lost hearing uh, that's from neuroinflammation i've had a lot of problems with my eyes that i mean i've had high 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 eye pressure I think that's cause I never had that high before. Or you still, even though you have good oxygen, it's weird. You have good oxygen readings, but it's hard to breathe. Maybe it's your muscles are inflamed. But the big thing that I got, I think a lot of people get is vertigo and also your muscles ache. So, you know, I could go up to a 10,000 foot, 500 foot Kaiser peak in three and a half hours with no problem whatsoever, just a year ago. And now, if I, you know, do exercise bike for 20 minutes, it feels like I had lactic acid burning in your muscles. And obviously, that's oxidation problem. So that inflammation can apparently create micro clots in your capillaries. So you don't get enough oxygen to the muscles, or you get neuropathy, pins and needles. I think one of our cinder cane, uh, from Maryland complained that that he had pins and needles that had long COVID. I get all these uh, symptoms, not just from reading, but people write me. And so then the question is, what do you do about it? Is it permanent or what? And I, I should point out here, Sammy, it doesn't seem to be predicated on whether you had a bad time with the acute phase or not. You know what I mean? Whether yeah. you were not. Were not People that were in the hospital and people who had it for a day can get long COVID. And it doesn't seem to be people necessarily that are elderly or with compromised immune system. From my experience of what I read and what I observe, it's almost that people have hyperimmune. immune. In other words, this was the little they had a lot of gasoline in their system and this torched it. In other words, if you had asthma or allergies or a autoimmune problem, I had an autoimmune problem I won't get into, but it seemed to trigger that make it worse and a lot of athletes, marathon runners, people who were really in great shape, were prone to it. I know people have written me and said i wrote a, I, I ran a marathon a week before I got ill. I can't walk across the you know the room and so they don't know quite those are the symptoms and those are the possible causes. But one thing they don't have is a universal description of what triggered it and therefore how to stop it systematically. So what the, the status is now is almost everybody knows that it's inflammation. So you you kind of want to repress the immune system, but you don't know what's causing the immune system to to go crazy. So, and it's like a true of a lot of, so you're just treating the symptoms. So if you say, I'm going to go to a long COVID center of any type, private or public or whatever, they're going to have you go to a pulmologist. I didn't do this, but you can go to a pulmologist. You can go to a neurologist, cardiologist, neurologist. Every person will treat that indiv- that their own disciplines, individual symptoms as manifested by you. And then they'll coordinate, make sure they don't overlap with drugs. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But but nobody says, ah, this is caused by a depletion of cortisol. Therefore, I'm going to find out what is depressing the cortisol rather than it's not the effect. It's the cause or these people are all really have a vascular disease. So I'm going to give warfarin and that's going to thin their blood. They're going to feel great but they don't know what caused it in the first place. You see what I mean? So they're treating it, they, and therefore, they are you going to be on war for the rest of your life? Yeah. Or they'll say to you, I can give you low-dose naltrexone that will gradually tone down your immune system and you won't have to take steroids, but I don't know what caused it to go crazy is what I'm trying to say, other than it's typical post-viral yeah. phenomenon. And yeah, In my case, I've had... Amoebic dysentery as a young person in over in the Arab world. I had uh, vivax malaria. I've had a ruptured appendix. I've had a lot of tropical illnesses. I've had a, a lot of vaccine I think I increased over a two-year period. I had over 20 vaccinations to go to You know, yellow fever, typhus, typhoid, plague, smallpox, to go to places you shouldn't go to. And I always had a bad reaction, so I know I had a immune problem. I had mono when I was thirty four, and it took me years to get over there. So, and so long COVID was, but it's it's mysterious, is what I'm concluding with. I had Delta, I got over it in three days a year ago, and I had high, sky high antibodies according to a test right before I got COVID. I still got the Omicron version, so there's so many complexities and mysteries that it almost makes you feel sometimes when you get a little low that only an engineered virus could create such havoc. And finally, it's, I don't think it's appreciated. I'm not whining that the medical profession is ignoring it. They're not. But when you start to read some statistics, I'm kind of doubtful, but I I give them some credence because I want to be fair-minded that one out of every five people who gets COVID has lingering symptoms and one out of every six or seven has severe long COVID, then you're talking about four to eight million people, right, in the United States. When you talk about a labor shortage, there's a lot of people who are either afraid of getting this long COVID or they have it or they're afraid of COVID, and they're not participating in the labor force. And so it's a multi-billion, if not trillion-dollar hit on the world economy. And I think it's really important to find out what it does. I think the bright thing I would leave people with, from my own experience, is it's very, very important to be optimistic and not to—I mean, and I'm not saying— I'll just finish with what you should do in my experience, what you should not do. I'll start with what you should not do. I got it. I got over it acute five days. I was really wiped out. I went on a seven day speaking tour, the moment I tested negative. And the whole time I got pins and needles, neuropathy, fatigue. It got worse. And then I led 105 people to Israel for 16 days. And then I came back and spoke in Nevada. When you added that up, For the first, I don't know, 35 days after I got acute COVID and tested negative, I was gone 30 days working 16, 17. That's the worst thing you can do is jet lag, time, airplane travel. Don't do that. I should have just stayed home. The second thing I think, if you just think you're going to go into uh, radical rest and just lay there, even though we don't have. Enough energy to move. I mean, there were days when I thought, hmm, when am I going to go into the kitchen and get some tea? (laughs) Let me get a strategy. Wow, I went and got tea. I actually walked. That was in the dark days of August. But you always, I always tried to exercise no matter what. I walked every single day a mile in the morning, a mile at night. And some days I was like on almost all fours. I was so wiped out. And that helps, and you always. And I worked every single day writing. I did not take a day off. But the first part was stupid. But I think later it helped me. And then what you should do is um, is, as I say, exercise. In my case, I took supplements. I experiment. I always did, had a, a simple rule that I would try one at a time. I would read extensively about the side effects, and I would not take the recommended dose. I would take small, but I took a lot of them. I still do. And then I would talk to a really great doctor who was an integrative doctor, and he would advise me. I also did acupuncture once a week. So to sum it all up, I think there's also, it's impossible to tell to what degree acupuncture or low-dose naltrexia or any of these supplements have a um, radical effect in healing, given I think there's also a time span. In other words, I think you get really ill, almost deadly ill, for the first three months of it, and then you feel like you have the flu for the next three months, and then at six months you start to taper off, and you have the lingering neuro, uh, fatigue and neuralgia, and then I hope by a year. So I'm in the, I think, beginning the third the third quarter, because I'd say I'm up to 70% of energy, and and I'd say the neuropathy and myalgia has gone from my hips down to my knees, down to my calves and feet, where it is. I got 50% of my, 50, depending on the day, 50 to 70%. I'm a little, I had the flu, so it's, it kind of set me back. But I, I feel that I'm progressing really well. And I hope my goal is to be cured sometime between Thanksgiving at nine months and Christmas. But I'm not sure that's a, I've had people call me up and say, it's amazing. He said, you know, I was sick as a dog and I woke up two days and my immune system shut shut off one guy was very interesting i go to and we were talking the other day he's an acupressurist uh, kind of mecha- body mechanics guy just to help you deal with uh, neuropathy and muscle ache and he was telling me that the immune system has to be shocked back it's like a railroad, you know, a locomotive that went off and it's spinning it's not on the rails. And once it's on the rails, it won't have to spin. And how do you get it back? From COVID shocked it off and made it not turn off. So how do you make it turn off so it goes back to a regular reaction? And There's all kinds of crazy theories. My God, there's people who do this ganglion nerve in the neck. Uh, there's people who get their blood washed. There's people that do stem cells. There's people who take ice cold baths. There's people that do all of these, uh, saunas. I'm not, I'm not deprecating any of them. And let me be clear, but my general rule, I think might be of some interest to some people that have it is don't try any, uh, unapproved medical course of treatment. If there are serious possibilities of side effects, if you if this was a terminal disease or an endless disease, then I could see doing it. But I think that it is a disease that is last. If you're very very lucky, three to six months. If you're normal, six months to a year. If you're unlucky, a year to two years. And so you would. Wow. You, you know that what I mean? Scary, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well. It, when scary I got,
1: enough. <laughs> yeah,
3: when I when I had it after two months, I said, "My God, I could have this for four months." When I had it for four months, I said to myself, "If this ends at six months, I'm blessed and went to heaven." And at six months, and it still hasn't gone away. But I feel that I've made enough enough progress that. Um, It's been really good. and I shouldn't say that. It's been really awful. It's worse than having a ruptured appendix. I've had three kidney. I was thinking the other day, would I rather have my kidneys? I have a 20 plus kidney stone, three kidney stone operation. Yes, I would rather have those than this. I had a ruptured appendix and almost died and had peritonitis for six weeks after the opera. Would I rather have that or the? I would rather have that? <laughs> I've had a <laughs> catastrophic bike accident, 175 stitches in my face, a destroyed knee, four teeth knocked out. Broken nose, lips destroyed. With can't feel them to this day. In the middle of my mouth, would I rather have that or that I'd rather have that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how insidious. I it don't
1: know. Is. The, the choice sounds tough to make, though.
3: Anyway, but I, <laughs> I, right. I, I try, We're laughing about it. And I don't want to laugh at people that have it. But I. Only reason we're talking about it. I don't want to talk about myself. But I want to make if I can contribute in any small way to somebody who's listening and who's had this. I would like to offer a ray of hope that the yeah. doctors are getting better and better and better at it. So every morning, just I just do this, take long COVID and do a Google search with Google News search. And you will see that every day the number of trials are going on. There's hundreds of trials by off-label drugs, supplement. They're trying everything. And I think it's kind of like the way to look at it. The guy that discovers going to be famous and a Nobel Prize winner.
1: Yeah. And
3: every everybody in immunology is is working on it. And I think they're going to find an answer that's safe. Yeah. And um, and I and I that's hope what every, we have
1: to look forward to. Yeah. yeah.
3: And yeah. don't be depressed. Don't let the. I think there is something with the neuroinflammation. inflammation. Oh, one thing is really bad about it is you have insomnia, and I started. I thought if I got two hours sleep in June and July, I was lucky. All night long, just buzzing like you put your hand into an electrical socket. And then by, I don't know, August, um, four hours, and then September, five. I went to Hillsdale. I didn't think I could teach four hours a day. And that was just that familiar surroundings, that quiet there, the people I like so much there. I did acupuncture, and I got away from all of the other stuff here, and I think I got better. I had a really great companion, Al Philp, that we rode bikes with, and even though I could, <laughs> it's pathetic riding them. But um, the, this, it, once you get up to six hours or five or six hours, I think things radically improve on your shoes. Yeah, suit. that's
1: good. Yeah. Well, Victor, so, we're at our time um, and actually way beyond it, so we better call it quits today thanks so much for all of your wisdom on the hispanic vote and on covid and on farming agriculture yes absolutely thank you so much and i'm sure your listeners thank you too
3: i hope so i this was a little off kind of out of the way, off the normal path type of podcast, but it was on issues that I think that are interested people. They affect us all. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All right. Well, this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off.
3: Thank you, everybody.